this is Jeremy Singer from the University of Glasgow. Welcome to the first ever Capabilities for Coders podcast. Today I'm going to have a chat with Professor Robert Watson, the brains behind Cherry. I'm delighted to be at the University of Cambridge Computer Lab today and I'm here with Robert Watson and it's great to see you Robert, meet you face to face and be able to talk to you about Cherry. So I gave you a bunch of questions beforehand which you've uh, been mugging up about but to be honest I'm sure you knew all the answers beforehand. The first question is what is a capability? And this is not from the perspective of you know a, a world expert like yourself but somebody who's just coming new to the subject. How do you introduce capabilities to a a beginner? I mean, it's such a hard question to answer. Capability is an idea. It's a design pattern for how we design software systems or hardware systems. And it originates in the 1970s, as do many of our ideas about computer security and OS design and language design. Mm -hmm. At the same time that concepts like virtual memory and object orientation are really starting to come to fruition as we sort of move through the early 1980s, the capability system ideas are maturing too. So what is a capability? A capability is a handle. It is uh, a reference to some object or some you know system resource that you have access to and by virtue of holding the capability whatever that may mean in whatever environment you work in you have the right to access it and often we like to make a comparison uh, we think of for example language references in java if you hold a reference to something you're able yeah. to access the object and interact with it if you don't hold the reference then you can't just make it up and that's an important property uh, capability is non-forgeable uh, another thing we care about is a concept called non-bypassability you have to go through through the capability mechanism to reach the object. And it's kind of an interesting composition. We talk about capabilities, and we find this idea in operating systems, in hardware and programming languages. But we should distinguish it, I think, from a capability system. A capability system is one that has these properties about non-forgeability and non-bypassability. In a capability system, you can only reach resources through capabilities. So when we look at Unix, for example, we find file handles which really resemble capabilities. Once you have a file handle, you can access the object and so on. You can't just make them up. That's a great property. But in Unix, there are other ways to access things than file handles. Yeah, backdoor mechanisms. Right. So it's it's bypassable. It's Mm -hmm. not that it's a bad idea, but in our true capability system, it's very important to us that everything is always accessed through capabilities because then we can reason about the impact the spread of capabilities, the sharing of capabilities, and so on. Good. Okay. Thanks. Um, I've spent a bit of time in the Haskell world, and there the concept that everybody, when they're learning Haskell, struggles to get to grips with is uh, monads. So you go on the internet, and there are hundreds of tutorials about what is a monad and why a monad is like a spacesuit or a burrito, and everyone has these you know amazing pictorial uh, uh, metaphors, I suppose, for for monads. Do people do the same thing for capabilities and capabilities? Oh, they try. Um, I mean, the anecdotes for us. Oh, I know about interesting anecdotes. I mean, the most common one is a lock and a key. Uh, in a key-based system, the bearer holds the key and they're allowed access no matter who they are. And one of the reasons people make that comparison is that they often contrast capabilities with access control lists. Mm. An access control list is a data structure that has a list of people or groups and the rights they have. And what we care about when we do a check is, you know, not are you holding the right key or not, we care who are you. Uh, yeah. In capability systems, it's about the bearer. And one thing that's important about capabilities is that you can hand them on to other parties. You can transfer capabilities. You can delegate them. Um, and this is true of keys, and it's why people like to 
make that comparison. I mean, in other ways, keys aren't great comparisons. You know, uh, keys can be forged, right? And I locks suppose. can be picked and so on. And in our ideal world, that's not true of capability <laughs> systems. But it's not a terrible metaphor. So okay. people will make this lock and key uh, mm. comparison. Thanks, that's helpful. Good. Okay. Um, you spoke about how uh, capabilities and the, the concepts around capability systems have been um, with us since the 1970s. Um, where do you draw your inspiration from um, in all the work you're doing now in the 2020s? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the idea of a capability system has evolved over time. I mean, you, you find the early concepts, uh, places like here, Cambridge, uh, MIT, uh, Berkeley, Carnegie Mellon, where you know, I think initially the concern was really about system robustness. Uh, when we think about capabilities and their original context, it was about limiting the impact of a system bug or a system failure. Um, and by limiting the access, by minimizing the privilege of software, we could constrain the potential for damage when something went wrong. I mean, in the 1980s, we see the first sort of inklings that this had a really strong security application, not just in the abstract, but in a very practical way. Uh, there's a great uh, piece of work done by Paul Codger, uh, who worked on the original Multics security evaluation, who comes to Cambridge to work on the CAP computer here. And uh, he proposes that something you can do with a capability system is constrain Trojan horses. By minimizing the privileges given to software, you minimize the damage the attacker can do if they can provide you with arbitrary code execution. I mean, he would never have used that phrasing. But today, the vulnerabilities we have that allow arbitrary code execution, the vulnerabilities that allow uh, injection of you know SQL or whatever it might be, yeah. we think about minimizing privilege to mitigate them. And that's kind of how we see the ideas evolve as they go along. In Cherry, we benefit a lot from a, a post-1970s, 1980s piece of work around programming languages, where capability system concepts get entangled with ideas about object orientation. And there's a, some really great pieces of work that take place in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, around taking existing type-safe languages and turning them into capability systems by adding more dynamic checking or by subsetting the language um, to work around language called Joey, uh, the E programming language, mm -hmm. uh, Kaha. The, they take uh, languages like Java and they say, well, how do you make them into a capability system? And it really helps us in our minds both differentiate the concepts of object orientation and language type safety and memory safety from the security concepts, but also builds them and brings them together. And in Cherry, those insights have been very important to us. If you look at earlier architectural capability systems, they're not usually very interested in implementing you know, language-level data types using capabilities, but we consider that essential in Cherry. We do C and C++ memory safety this way, and that learns a lot from those later ideas. Yeah. There's one other set of ideas that really uh, comes to the front a lot, and that's um, the mock microkernel from Carnegie Mellon in the 1990s. You know, one of the early microkernel projects, very focused on uh, object orientation or using you know communication channels as capabilities in the inherent design. And as we work our way up through the software stacks on Cherry, exploring new ideas, we find ourselves constantly turning back to these papers and these ideas. The world is very different when those pieces of work is done. The motivations are different, the technologies are different, but some of those ideas carry through and apply really nicely in our environment. Yes, just going off on a wild tangent for a minute, I guess that's very encouraging for a PhD student who's ploughing a lonely furrow thinking, you know, none of this stuff's ever going to be useful. And then, you know, maybe 30 years later, somebody will come along and say, ah, that's just what I need. I mean, presumably for a mathematician, you experience that kind of thing a lot, only it might not be 30 years, it might be 100 years. But I mean, it's certainly true. I mean, yes. when we do this work, it's not that we don't have, I hope, our own novel contributions and things to bring to the story. But 
looking back at some of these earlier ideas, we find they apply as the circumstances change. The things that caused those ideas to be rejected at the time may have changed. Uh, we have a lot more uh, you know, uh, area available to us in silicon. We can have more transistors. The security threat has changed. Networking has arisen. Understanding of programming languages has changed a lot. We're in a much better place to have ideas such as Cherry today than we were perhaps 20 years ago. And that's, that's really exciting. Good. One of the very exciting things is the Arm Morello project. And I'm wondering how satisfying it is for you to see all the ideas you've been working on for so long actually realised in, you know, a deployed system. Uh, You know, you've got a machine under your desk that effectively you designed and, and created. I, mean, I think we are just like utterly elated. Uh, it is really exciting. Uh, we started this project in 2010 and the assessment at the time was this is probably a 10 to 20 year technology transition cycle. We develop the thing, assuming anyone likes the idea, get it under desks. Uh, yeah. I think in the end it's going to be 20 years. Um, you know, We are 13-ish years in now and we have prototype hardware from Arm. You know, Arm had a team of over 100 people working wow. uh, to try and bring this together. It was a, an amazing collaboration. We worked yeah. with some really great people there. And of course, that work continues now. But I think also that work isn't done, right? This is a research prototype. It is intended to help people evaluate the ideas, decide how they scale, how useful they are, you know, what uses there are for the technology that we haven't even imagined and thought about. It's, it's designed to be a set of architectural primitives that allow new things. It makes new things efficient that we just couldn't have done before. Um, which is really great. And as you say, I have a box under my desk. Uh, I gave the talk at the recent uh, Digital Security by Design or Hands Meeting from a Morello box. And, you know, you get the, uh, I say for us, the usual demo, but I think, you know, sort of the exciting demo from the sector of new technology is the, uh, you know, the Steve Jobs, just one more thing, right? You, you give your talk and only at the end you reveal that you're running on the experimental technology. Nice and that thing. entire time you're going through thinking to yourself, it had better not crash now. It had better not crash now, right? Uh, and yet it didn't crash. Um, and, you know, the work isn't done, but that kind of demonstration is important because it helps people imagine that a technology can be real, uh, that it's not just uh, something in a rack mount server or something in simulation or, you know, some wild, crazy imaginings. I mean, although obviously it is all those things, um, but also it's a system they could imagine using every day. And perhaps, you know, particularly challenging around security is that the ultimate demonstration of a security technology is that nothing goes wrong, right? That everything continues, you know, yeah. utterly unimpeded by, you know, attackers and accidents and everything else. Yeah. This, in some sense, makes security very boring to demonstrate because what you want to just show off is nothing happening. Uh, and that's why it worked out so nicely. But I think there's also, you know, speaking of this excitement, right, there's sort of this frigidon excitement. You pull up the terminal window and you realize the whole software environment is running with memory safety, that there is, you know, fine-grained software compartmentalization, a, a demo for another day at this point in our, in our development life cycle. But all those things coming together, that they can work in an enormously complex you know, hundreds or billions of lines of code system uh, is really exciting. It's, a, it's an unexpected computer science result that we could get to this place. And Morello shows that off in a, in a really lovely way. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And lots of other people are as excited as you to be able to run the Morello hardware, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, I should I should point out, by the way, you know, uh, this is the work of, you know, not just hundreds of people at ARM, but also uh, Cambridge, SRI, Microsoft, Google, and elsewhere. Uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement about Morello boards. Uh, it was uh, really exciting the first time, you know, ARM had brought in, I guess, a couple of these chips and they had them mounted up and they're busy sending a serial console output as they try to boot the OS for the first yes. time. And that is a, a great moment, even if it's at like two in the morning, uh, you know, <laughs> the way it goes. Fantastic. Busy emailing out screenshots to, uh, to sponsors and collaborators saying, you know, look, it boots, it wow. boots. Great. 
you alluded to the fact that um, you've been uh, thinking about Cherry for a long time, you know, running this project for over a decade. What have you got left to do? What uh, is the next big thing as far as capability systems are concerned? I mean, it's a good question too. Uh, it's hard to understand the future, right? Um, part of the challenge in a technology like Cherry and like so many of these experimental things is helping people imagine that they could be real, that the costs are low enough, that the benefits are good enough, that the impact is mostly positive on the work that they do. Um, and I think that's kind of the place we are now. We have this first, you know, real industrial quality demonstrator that you can build it. You know, the, one of the key hypotheses is that in the microarchitecture, you can build using a contemporary technology, a full-scale processor design, you know, multi-core, superscalar, et cetera, et cetera, that it can be done. And I think that hypothesis is now validated, right? We know that there can be acceptable area and performance overheads and so on. Mm, you've got an existence proof. We have an existence <laughs> proof. Uh, you know, both the kind, the kind of evidence we like least in systems research, but also the most important kind of evidence. Well, yes. um, so that's that's really good, but it, it's not sufficient. I mean, the goal of this exercise, the Morello exercise, is to convince the world this is a viable technology, and that's yes. not done. Um, it's true we've proven one of the most important hypotheses, mm-hmm. but we've hardly proven all of them. Um, we need to demonstrate that for real-world software, that we can bring it over and run it at scale, that some of the aspects of the work that are less mature in our current thinking around software compartmentalization or temporal memory safety or you know a variety of topics, that those also come to fruition. It's nice that we can present these slides running on a Morello memory safe desktop environment. That is amazing, yeah. but it's not sufficient. Uh, we know that memory protection comes at a performance overhead inherently. We need to understand that overhead and how it will play out in future chips uh, yeah. You know, as we gain more experience. Yeah. Um, the argument around compartmentalization, on the other hand, is that we can do many more compartments much more efficiently than we can today. And so in some sense, that's a performance improvement Mm. argument relative to the current techniques that are used. And that requires building really big software demonstrations and evaluating them. It means taking, uh, you know, hundreds of million lines of code applications like Chromium and demonstrating we really can compartmentalize them. And that's not just a question about Cherry. It's actually a question about the design of software. What What we're saying is that you can introduce encapsulation, if you will, into existing large software corpora without disrupting them so much that you might as well rewrite them because a big part of the cherry argument is that it is an incrementally adoptable technology that doesn't break everything right that you can recompile your c code or make relatively modest changes to applications to get this benefit and we haven't proven that hypothesis yet Uh, so there's a lot of active work going on here and sri and elsewhere to try and start pushing on that but it'll be several years i think before we're done really uh, hopefully demonstrating that it's a correct hypothesis but also you know exploring all the aspects of that sure um Following up on the idea of adoption, um, I guess um, you and myself as well as part of this Capabilities for Coders project, we're trying to encourage uh, new developers to come on board and uh, learn about Cherry uh, and try and adopt it in their own uh, systems uh, development uh, projects. How would you sell Cherry to people, or at least, sorry, sell the idea of Cherry to, to people? What would convince them to... I mean, I guess we've been successful join. often at selling the idea. It's the real thing where we're still working on it. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there are a few different ideas uh, that we promote around Cherry. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's incrementality, which is to say, yes, it requires a step in hardware design, but it doesn't require you to update all your software at once. Mm-hmm. We argue about uh, the memory protection aspects, how we can close many existing vulnerability categories. We can also break 
nuke many existing exploit techniques. I think there's much to understand about that. We often divide that space into things that are deterministically prevented and things that are kind of like non-deterministically or opportunistically prevented. Uh, and finding and understanding the boundary there and also shifting the boundary so that more and more things are deterministically prevented is really interesting to us. Um, the uh, teams at Microsoft who evaluate security and uh, you know security technologies like Cherry like that line around determinism. Determinism is something where you have a guarantee, right? And many of the security technologies we use today, and this is one of the reasons why you criticize those technologies, are non-deterministic. Uh, but Cherry itself, there are some fine lines as well. Like which things do we entirely prevent in terms of vulnerabilities? You know, uh, do we make a strong claim that buffer overflows, you know, lead to uh, you know deterministic fail-stop behavior uh, versus perhaps things like pointer injection, where we say, well, you know, pointer injection is a powerful tool for attackers, but you know, by eliminating it, have we actually prevented the attacker from accomplishing their goal? Have we simply shifted their focus to other techniques? There's stuff to understand there. But I think you know that memory protection claim is something that programmers find accessible. They may be used to programming in high-level languages, where when you run off the end of a buffer or use after free or any number of interesting program errors, you know, you get a clean deterministic failure. And while Cherry is not a bug-finding tool, it does provide these deterministic guarantees. And I think those are things that people find accessible. And, you know, it comes at some compatibility and performance and so on overhead. And trying to characterize that is a big part of this project. Mm. I mean, another key pitch is this software compartmentalization. Compartmentalization is software sandboxing. It's breaking software into pieces. It's isolating them from each other. You know, I think there is a strong belief that this offers really substantive security improvement. It, it's uh, the principle of least privilege tells us that as we reduce the privileges we run a piece of software with, the attacker loses power. Like they lose uh, when they successfully uh, exploit a vulnerability, whatever kind it might be, right? They achieve arbitrary code execution as sort of a strong model of what they can do. You know, they have access to fewer rights and they have access to fewer attack surfaces. And both of those constrain what they can achieve. And people try to do this today. Uh, if you look at iOS, for example, uh, on an, uh, you know, an iPhone. Yeah. You know, one of the key security technologies there is software sandboxing. It constrains not just your apps, but also, you know, numerous other components. Hundreds of sandboxes, you know, sit there running in the background supporting your activities. We want to take that idea much further. We want to get to thousands, right? We want to have every image processed in its own sandbox, every message, every attachment. Because what we want to know is that if any of those is influenced by someone to, you know, exploit a vulnerability or gain attempt to gain control of your system, that they gain very little. Ideally, they gain access only to the thing that they provide you with, right? If they send you an image, then great, they have access to that image, nothing more than that. And we just can't achieve that with current hardware. And we believe we can achieve it with Cherry. Like that is what it is designed to do. So that pitch is a really powerful one. It's one that says if you have existing sandboxing, we can actually make your system faster and use less power by converting to using this architectural technique as opposed to page tables and processes. Mm -hmm. But it's also an argument that says we could do much more of this protection, maybe still cheaper than what we can do today. Um, and that is potentially very powerful if software is conducive to that. And I think that's one of the real challenges around compartmentalization is, you know, uh, it disrupts application structure. When we recompile software to make it memory safe, it's pretty non-disruptive. Mm. But on the compartmentalization side, we need a stronger pitch, right? Because it is potentially more disruptive. Okay. Mm. Last question. You've been working on this with lots of colleagues for a very long time. 
person decades perhaps of, of effort and it's been very successful has it been good fun Robert? Uh, it has been excellent fun I mean you have to you know going back to presenting at conferences I mean uh, the excitement associated with a successful demo uh, <laughs> is something special right uh, yeah. we used to give uh, demonstrations at DARPA events to try and show off these technologies and you know uh, you and your team are sitting there you know 72 hours before the presentation moment and trying to get all these pieces of software the full hardware software stack to work together to achieve these goals is enormously motivating um, it is really a lot of fun for everyone uh, the hours and the time can be intense so you say person decades I think you know right now our weekly uh, cherry project call across SRN Cambridge is about 25 people uh, many of whom are working full time on the project and have been for you know approaching a decade in many cases it is a huge amount of work um, but the, f- the fun as you say is is working across all those bits of the system and coming to learn about them to create cherry we've had to rediscover the way that hardware and software systems work because we're looking at every part of them saying how do we change the representation of the software how does it interact with the hardware and that that learning is really great right I, you know before we did this project i had no idea how many of these bits of the system worked right and now when i see a computer in front of me i have a much better understanding i think no one would claim to have a complete understanding i certainly wouldn't but uh trying to now this feeds in a really lovely way though into teaching because we also have the opportunity to explain these systems in ways mm. that people mm. I have trouble learning about elsewhere, right? You know, sure. it's, you, you build the system in order to rebuild the system in order to add security up and down the stack. Mm. It's really great. Brilliant. <laughs> Professor Robert Watson, thank you very much. Very welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Mm.